we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. You know, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices radio show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, July the 1st, 2022, and we're back for a live show here today, and I'm really excited about it. So I am your host, Allison Cole, and I am joined here today by my guest co-host, Laura Sampson. Hi. Thanks for being here. So we have two not-to-be-missed interviews on today's show with some special guests in the studio today who we'll introduce later. If you've been watching the news or subscribed to our Instagram or Facebook posts at Animal Voices Vancouver, you'll know that the case of the Excelsior 4 is now in trial at the Abbotsford Law Courts for BC animal activists Amy Serrano, Nick Schaefer, and Roy Sassano. The fourth activist, Jeff Regeer, was acquitted from all of his charges after this April's pretrial. Amy, Nick, and Roy have been charged with a total of 14 indictable offenses for exposing masses of animal cruelty taking place at the Excelsior Hog Farm in Abbotsford, BC in 2019. These offenses include the day of the Meet the Victims Canada action on April the 28th, 2019, which roughly 200 activists took part in, and Animal Voices was there that day reporting live. Today's show is dedicated to peeling apart more of the layers of this case as they have surprisingly unfolded in week one of the trial. Nick and Roy will be sharing the details of what happened in court this week and their valuable insights that trigger the themes of justice or injustice, court biases, crucial evidence, and the testimonies of the hog farmers at Excelsior. So that's coming up very soon. For our second interview, we are pleased to have the one and only Ingrid Newkirk on the show. As you may know, she is the founder and president of the largest animal rights organization in the world, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She has just published the 30th anniversary edition of her extremely compelling book called Free the Animals. It's a story of the history of the Animal Liberation Front and fits so well into today's theme of undercover direct action for saving the animals when our legal systems and other governing authorities don't do anything. That interview is coming up in 27 minutes, so please do stay tuned. So as I mentioned, Laura, you and I were in in Abbotsford most of this week. I was there all week this week to attend the court trial week one and to report on the Excelsior 4 trial as it unraveled before us. Just general impressions. How did you feel about this week in court and your experience there? I honestly sat there contemplating whether I want to live on this planet anymore because us vegans are such a minority and I can't believe how 
how the general public is just fine with animal cruelty and and at this point in life not questioning what we're putting in our bodies what we're doing to our planet what we're doing to animals and it feels hopeless I, and i and i hate that we need people to break the law and go undercover and expose what's happening because people refuse to google what happens to animals and make really honest choices about what they're choosing to consume yeah, exactly. And, you know, there was that that court trial is open for everyone to attend, which we did as members of the public and the media. But um, yeah, you're right. A lot of this is it's covered. And that was that's the purpose of the trial, right, is to actually expose to the public even more. So it's already been all over the Internet. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know we know what video evidence is out there. I took much of it myself. I I saw it firsthand. And there was so many live streaming cameras in in the barn that day of Meet the Victims on April the 28th. And there's so much more evidence that is actually, it was passed on to the media by PETA three years ago when this happened. And that was the first of it. And we've seen much more on online since then. But it's a matter of really getting people to understand and seeing, I feel I really saw the disconnect this week between the farming community and I guess how we, I wanted to say we're regular people with our eyes and minds and hearts open, mm-hmm. you know, and there's definitely a dichotomy there. Of course, that is the main theme of today's show and in the studio here for our first interview and discussion today fresh from our first week in court we have Roy Sassano, Nick Schaefer and Kira Cheeseborough on the show who is a supporter of the trial do you want to say hello for mic test everyone hello 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 oh there's Nick okay (laughs) so you uh, Nick and Roy you are known as two of the remaining three Amy couldn't be here today but thank you for joining us in the studio you're two of the three remaining excelsior activists who have been charged now with 14 indictable offenses for your roles in exposing egregious cruelty at the excelsior hog farm in abbotsford bc early in 2019 it's uh, it's three years later now there have been a lot of stalls in the court process to date you had your pretrial a few months ago from late March to early April, and we had an interview with Nick and Roy then on April the 8th. If anyone's interested in learning about what happened there, just go to animalvoices.org. The actual trial started this Monday, June the 27th, and goes until July the 22nd, Monday to Friday at the New Abbotsford Law Courts from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Anyone is allowed to attend to observe, as my co-hosts Laura and I have been doing all week. There were a lot of thoughts, feelings, and significant points of interest with regards to this trial that should be made known to the public. And remember, this is where our food in BC comes from. And I know that as a consumer and member of the public myself, I want to know about where that food comes from. And I would hope that everyone else listening to this would as well. So today, Roy and Nick, you're going to divulge and recap the details of what went down in week one of the trial. So I'm wondering if you could maybe start off with, and Kira as well, what are your, just briefly, what are your main impressions, a brief summary of how the first week has left you three feeling and hoping for the future? Anyone can start. Well, I, I, th- <laughs> I think that uh, in general, it was disappointing to see some decisions made that uh, really prevent prevent us from making uh, a defense, the defense that we wanted to make. 
um, and we feel like uh, we're being muzzled, I guess is a, is a good way to put it, Nick. Yeah. Um, this entire process from pre-trial all the way up until now, I've been pretty pretty positive, pretty you know excited, pretty happy, pretty feeling really good in court, really enjoying the process. Today was actually the first time since this all started that I woke up feeling really sad, uh, really defeated, really upset. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's unfortunate um, because I believe that we do have such a good case and we have such a good plat- uh, such a good platform to amplify the voices of these animals. And like Roy said, we're being muzzled. Um, we're being proven again that, like you said, um, you want the right to know what's going on inside of this farm. And, inside farms across BC, across the world, and it's being proved to us time and time again that you don't have the right. Nobody has the right to know, um, and that's not right. As an observer in the courtroom, Kira, what were your impressions summing up in a few sentences of this week? Very frustrating. (laughs) So I'm seeing a theme here. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's honestly a mockery of justice when you see the inability to allow um, Amy, Nick, and Roy to make their full defense and to, again, have animal voices be heard because it's Mm -hmm. a lot of people in the public don't know because that whole industry is secretive and operates behind a wall that nobody knows. And this could have been such a good way of having better awareness raised about even just what is regularly happening. What is the legal animal cruelty that is happening? Would you like to start, Roy, by giving us a summary as to how the first few days went with Inspector Murray on the witness stand and then being cross-examined by your lawyer with regards to your break-and-enter charge for the Meet the Victims Day of Action on April the 28th, 2019? Inspector Murray's direct examination was pretty straightforward, just laying out certain facts about Meet the Victims. Um, he kind of seemed to say that he was flustered when he got there. He thought it was a little bit chaotic and that things got more organized. And what he described was, a, uh, in my opinion, a very orderly discussion, negotiation, and uh, uh, ultimately execution of the plan, which was a media tour before, um, before arresting all the activists who were inside the barn. Cross-examination uh, was maybe the one good thing that uh, happened this week. Really good thing is uh, so we showed Inspector Murray a video of a police officer uh, coming outside uh, and bringing me into the barn, escorting me into the barn. Uh, Inspector Murray did not recall asking that officer to do that, although we were pretty sure he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but upon seeing that, he said, okay, that happened. Uh, his facial expression was interesting uh, seeing that. And uh, he acknowledged rightfully that that didn't really look like a break and enter. So that's the one good thing that uh, that happened. And that is because you that's one of your charges, right? Which I was flabbergasted to hear this week that one of your charges is break and enter on that day. Is correct. That correct. Correct. Okay. Well, that one's dropped. Let's hope, right? That, that's you'd yeah. think that we've believed right from the start that we shouldn't have had to find any video of this or anything like it should have uh, Abbotsford police detective uh, should have known about this crown should have known about this someone should have been making some notes or reading some notes mm-hmm. if there were any 
reviewing what evidence and and we have good reason to believe that they had plenty of uh, evidence to review to have discovered this um, without putting us through uh, extra charge or extra couple charges uh, for me on that. So right, and there is a detective working on this case as well. So you know, just put that right. out there. Let's tell our listeners right now what is standard legal practice on a pig farm. Well, in trial, uh, a line of questioning did come up um, regarding uh, chores that might have been happening on on the Sunday, April 28, 2019. And uh, Calvin Benedike described the entire artificial insemination process. Uh, which they generally call breeding, I guess, uh, amongst themselves. I'm not sure if I want to... Nick, do you want to say that? I, I, it's just <laughs> disgusting to say. and I. <laughs> as in, like, graphically described yeah. as a lawyer. I think that anyone in, listening who might be consuming pigs needs to hear this. All right, so yeah, my lawyer took the stand, or took uh, his stand, I guess, um, to describe the process to Calvin and have him confirm it. Um, and the process basically involves... Uh, he, he first did ask... Is there any natural breeding that happens on the farm? And Calvin said no. Um, so right then and there, you know, the pigs don't naturally get to breed ever. Um, first, the first part of the process is uh, basically they get semen trucked in from other farms um, or wherever the semen comes from. Uh, they then put the semen into a syringe and then they inject it into the vaginas of the pigs. Um, Kelvin obviously confirmed all of that to be true. Um, not only confirmed it, but looked proud when he was confirming it. And, uh, it didn't seem to phase him whatsoever. I mean, obviously they're desensitized to it, but myself and I assume everyone else in the courtroom felt pretty put off by it. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Was there anything else to that these process? Pigs are in these stalls while that's being done. Yes. Can you describe those stalls? So, um, he was also asked if the pigs are in gestation crates during that time. He said, yes, they go in for a period of five days. During that five days is when that artificial insemination happens. Um, they then stay in the crates for three to five weeks. Um, and then they, once they're confirmed pregnant, they go into another pen for a little bit, uh, and then they are put back into farrowing crates where they give birth, and then they spend the remainder of the pregnant or they, they spend the remainder of the time until the pigs are old enough to go on without them, uh, and then they start the entire process again. So their whole life is that breeding process. And we should mention that both the gestation crates and the farrowing crates—it can't be said enough. Uh, barely allow the pigs to lie down, stand up. They cannot move, maybe take a step back and forth. That's it. Yeah. Where can our audience see some photos of these gestation crates? Your website is? It is uh, excelsior4.org. Honestly, you can find pictures of that anywhere you want. Uh, yeah. It's going to be the same pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, they're trying to phase them out, but the industry is fighting for delay after delay after delay to keep using them. So let's talk a little bit about the, you've described just the breeding process, but I want to give our listeners a picture of what this facility all looks like. And it was shown in the courtroom, the land that they have, the uh, acreage that they have in Abbotsford and the barns that you could see from a satellite map. And the activists were in the breeding barn, as was confirmed by the farmer. Do one of you want to speak about, as we learned, right, exactly how many pigs are in that place at every given moment, how much they're sold for, and how much business there is in this? This was shocking. Let's hear the numbers. 
So the farm itself houses around 13 to 15,000 pigs. Um, let's just go with 14,000 or in the middle. Um, each pig. So yeah, at any time there's 14,000 pigs. They sell about 500 pigs a week at about $200 a life, um, which equates to around 5.4. million dollars a year so those numbers right there um they obviously show you that this is definitely a small family farm um it's it's just ridiculous they just they obviously always say this is a small family farm but if you're bringing in 5.2 5.2 million dollars a year with 14,000 pigs at any given time that's nothing but a factory farm sending 26,000 souls to like the worst death imaginable every single year, right? So. Yeah. And the owner of the farm, his title is the president of the... Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, what is the title? He's a board, he's a board member of the uh, BC Pork Producers Association. So you would expect that to be tip-top shape, no uh, animal... And, and their vet on. will attest to the, the fact that this is an industry leader right. as well. right. Well, that's how I've been advertising them for three years. Be, you know, one of BC's top pig producing farms facilities and animal welfare. But I, then I was shocked to learn about the, uh, you know, their actual knowledge and practices in the farm that, that Calvin Benedict was put to on the witness stand. And I want to get into talking about some of those. So that came on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Excelsior co-owner and hog farmer Calvin Benedict came to the stand. And let's go through some of the questions that your, I believe it was your lawyer, Roy, that asked, asked him about. He was trying to get a picture of how, you know, how the pigs are treated and, and, um, asking him questions about his expertise, for example, or, or do you want to start or I can give examples? Uh, you can give examples. Yeah. I can, I can say in generally yeah. how it went really quickly. And yeah. It's, <laughs> okay. So this was actually fairly promising at the beginning of the trial. So, you know, your lawyer was asking, do you give the pigs daily health inspections as required by law? And what was his answer? Uh, he said they, they walked through the barn. Right, and look at them, look at them in Oh, yeah, groups. they just look, look at them in the pens, and that, mm-hmm. that's what uh, he was trying to say counts as his uh, required daily, daily mm-hmm. inspection. And let's remember this is approximately 15,000 pigs. Mm-hmm. Right, and he did say that the whole, like, the whole facility is run by about five people. Correct. So family members and maybe one hand and a uh, couple of their kids who we've seen working at the barn right. in videos for sure. When my cat gets sick, it takes two of us to take care of her. <laughs> Literally. Someone That's not a lie. Vet, someone yeah. needs to monitor food. Someone needs to monitor poops. 15,000 pigs, four adults, and some children. Mm-hmm. Right. So he, another question was, do you have a herd health management program? And Calvin's answer was, I guess we do. And then your lawyer said, well, what is it? He says, we have a book we follow. Well, it's not a book. I don't know. I don't understand the question. <laughs> and your oh lawyer then prompted, what is it? And he said, it's our program book for health management. Yeah. And then he asked about how the pigs get examined for sickness and injury, since the law requires that each pig be examined every day. And, you know, he did say that the pigs get uh, inspected annually, once a year, by their own vet. And we we kind of know how that's going to go, right? Yeah. That's yeah. What he says. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was asked if somebody comes in to make sure if 
the protocols and everything are being followed by the farm. And mm-hmm. he said, yes, somebody comes by once a year. Right, for 15,000 pigs, 20, <laughs> 26,000 a year. He asked him about the sanitation protocol, the Prevention for Cruelty to Animals Act. Do you want to talk about that? I think his response was, um, yeah, I think there's one. Yeah, and then when he asked, uh, are you aware of the standards of care required under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act? His response was, not exactly. I'm sure there is a policy about it, but I don't know it off the top of my head. Your lawyer then asked, are you aware of the criminal code with regards to cruelty to animals? He said, and there were a lot of long pauses Mm -hmm. before these answers. He paused and said, I know I'm not allowed to abuse animals. The lawyer asked, are you aware of the safe foods for Canadian regulations? Response was, not exactly, no. And then your lawyer said, so you are not aware of these three laws. He says, I'm I'm aware of them, but I can't spout them to you. And then after he said, treat him good. And his dad, who was sitting behind me, said, yeah, good enough. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) Did not know that. His father was extremely disruptive in the gallery and laughing almost every time some animal cruelty was brought up and you could see that the other members of their group were trying not to laugh as well they they seem to think that this is just insane that there's people out there who care about animals so he also asked him do you agree that the law prohibits hitting animals with a whip or a prod unless it's done for certain purposes his response was if that's what it says and He then was questioned later about, do you electric prod pigs in the face or kick them? Do you want to speak about what his response was to that, Roy? With electric prodding, I was impressed because that was the only question where he had some vague idea of what the rule is. Uh, And he knew that he wasn't supposed to electric prod them in the face, uh, which is is great. But he did deny that he did it, did deny that he ever saw anyone do it, which is obviously quite interesting for anyone who's been following uh, anything that's been released out of Excelsior Hog Farm. Yes, as uh, you know, a casual observer of the internet myself, I've actually seen video footage of them prodding pigs in the face. And we had actually Anna Pippis, a farmed animal rights lawyer, come on the show to speak about these violations that we're seeing in video evidence. And she went step by step through all of them, explaining how those violations were being made, that you can hear that on animalvoices.org, that podcast. Clearly, we have farmers lying under oath on the stand. Well, yes, and we'll get into that in a bit here. It's just, just you know, what Laura and I have seen on video, right? That just shows exactly what's been going on. And anyone else can see that footage as well. You just go to excelsior4.org and, and it's there. So, yeah, he asked about, you know, do you uh, electric prod in the face? His response was, we're not supposed to. I don't do it. He was asked, have you ever seen it happen? He said, I don't recall. We don't do that. And then he said, we're just gentle with the pigs. And the lawyer said, I want to be clear. Your testimony is that you're gentle with the pigs. And a lot of his responses were, I I was a little bit perturbed that he wasn't giving yes or no responses. They're more like, yep, yep. And to that one, he quietly said, yeah. So gentle with the pigs. I also noticed him a lot of the times after he would answer questions like that, he would bow his head and wouldn't look at anyone. So it, it kind of looked like he was bowing his head in shame, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think he seemed very frustrated, as though he was being unfairly attacked. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say, the whole time the dad was laughing. 
not showing a lot of support for his son. With his mask off of his face and some of them in the gallery with their cell phones out after being repeatedly told not to. These are people who have repeatedly shown us that they have a disregard for policies and that they make their own rules in life, even when it affects very innocent beings. So we're going to move on here, but is there anything else from that day that you wanted to point out in terms of your observations or notes that you took? It might be a little too funny, so I'll say quickly, regarding earlier, you're talking about kicking pigs. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't kick pigs. I just gently guide them with my feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Joe, my lawyer, is trying to get him to describe kicking, um, describe what kicking is. And he said, well, I do move my feet towards them slowly. (laughs) And it reminded me of all the debates we've seen in hockey. But uh, was that putt kicked in for any hockey fans out there? It was much, much funnier uh, (laughs) than that, despite the dark subject matter. Right. Yeah, that is so true. There was a lot of just sort of a lot of deflections in this whole line of questioning for sure. So we're going to move on now. And uh, Laura, you can take it from here. Basically, we're going to talk about what else happened during the week. We can speak about what happened on Wednesday, Thursday. Let's start with Wednesday. There was some evidence that wanted to be presented in front of court. So Wednesday is day three of the trial, and if you all want to just explain what happened when certain evidence was potentially going to be introduced. Was this the, uh, this was uh, uh, Crown? The voir dire. It was Wednesday when your um, your side of the evidence wanted... Um, okay, so th- yeah. this, is, this is with Benedict up during cross-examination. So this is exactly. after all these questions right. came up. Benedict was going to be cross-examined. Right. So, uh, about the questions that we just mentioned with the farmer sort of denying a bunch right. of practices. Right, so, so we were stopped to uh, basically uh, talk about the line of questioning and the evidence that uh, my lawyer was going to bring up after all these terrible answers um, came up. And in the end... The decision from the judge was that, no, uh, you can't bring your, that evidence. And it was really the best evidence and the best arguments, in my opinion, that uh, we have, my layperson opinion. But uh, uh, So we've been denied um, the right uh, to make uh, a really strong argument in our favor and to bring in the evidence supporting that. Basically, we've been denied our right to defend ourselves with the defense that we were planning all along. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was devastating. It was devastating to see the outcome of that board year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are are you able to discuss what could have been shown right now to our listeners? We can say that the it would have cast a lot of doubt on the statements made by the Binnendikes, uh, whether or not they're honest uh, and if they're credible overall. It would have cast a lot of doubt on that. Specifically, maybe with the charge of mischief for people who might not know, uh, it requires interference with the lawful use of property. And we feel we would have been able to question whether or not um, there is interference with lawful use uh, of the property by the owners of Excelsior Hog Farm. Mm-hmm. We only have a couple minutes left, so I don't want to get into any huge topic, but I do just want to mention that your lawyers uh, were very smart to bring up the fact that in a previous case similar to this, when Anita Crines was giving water to thirsty pigs through the truck holes, the slaughter truck holes, on their way to slaughter as one act of mercy before they're brutally slaughtered, uh, the, the judge in that trial did allow the meat industry to basically be put on trial. All of the practices were discussed, and she did not go to jail for what she did. And she was tampering with property, and she was... Uh, 
it, it was a mischief charge, I, I believe, as well. Correct? I think it was a mischief charge, and yes, it is relevant that uh, we brought up, and in fact, the judge brought up several instances of kind of similar charges in and with animal rights cases where the evidence and the arguments um, similar to ours would have uh, were allowed, and mm-hmm. yet we were denied. So we were in observance, myself, Laura, and Kira, during most of the days, myself all the days this week, in the gallery, which is the seating area for the, um, the members of the public, audience members, anyone who wants to attend. And Laura and Kira, you would like to say something about your experience this week in the gallery. So there are some rules when you're in the gallery in a courtroom. No cell phones can be on, obviously. You must wear your mask, and that means over your nose. And uh, no talking or or laughing or outbursts during the proceedings, obviously. Any more that you can think of that I'm not remembering here? I'm just mentioning, though, that the order about the mask was actually um, a judge's order specifically for this trial. So that's goes beyond any of the provincial health guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so the reason we're bringing this up is because the group that was family and or friends of the Benindix, the the farmers, were every day walking into the courtroom without their mask on and having to be reminded. And then when most of them went to put them on, they still had their noses out. And there was one woman in particular who seemed acutely sick, didn't she, Kira? Oh, yeah. She was coughing like every 30 seconds. And she had her mask down, so her nose was yeah. exposed. And she was sitting quite close to us. And you are immunocompromised, <laughs> as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I am. So it's obviously distressing. And I'm not the only one. There's many people who you know, from the public, but also um, in the court who are either immunocompromised themselves or are just close to vulnerable family members or household members. And so like, we want to be courteous, but um, I, I actually overheard the Venendike family um, when they were first coming in and told that they had to put their masks on. There was some offhand comments amongst themselves. Why do we have to wear masks? Oh, because of COVID. And then they laughed. There was a lot of laughing from that group in general, especially when some of the more disturbing practices were being discussed in the courtroom about what they've been doing to pigs. Mm -hmm. And especially uh, one of the members of the family, who I believe is the father of the Benedict brothers who run the farm, um, was seemingly incapable of not having inappropriate outbursts every single day, multiple times. And I had to keep asking the sheriffs if they were in the room, but I would go find them outside the room if they weren't. And I would let them know what was happening with the mask and the outbursts. And uh, on the final day that I was there, which was Wednesday, two of their members had their cell phones on. One mm-hmm. of them was in his shirt pocket with the camera part facing the courtroom. So if he was recording, he would have had a good shot of that. Uh, he could have potentially captured the activists' faces, and nobody feels safe with that, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we know that these are violent people that may be vindictive, and, and we're not comfortable in a, in a space that should feel safe for us. Mm-hmm. And another woman had her cell phone on, and I could see the light glowing in her hand that it was placed face down on, which means that it's on, and I wondered if it was recording as well. And when I told the sheriffs, who were standing right behind them, by the way, who should have noticed this themselves, I had to turn around to notice it, so I don't know how the sheriffs didn't notice it. Um, they didn't immediately do anything about it. And I kept looking to see that their cell phones were apparently still in use. And then finally, one of the sheriffs told me that she would speak with them on a break. She didn't want to disrupt the court. And I thought, this is a reason to disrupt court. They have no problem disrupting court. They do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't feel safe, honestly. No, I, I didn't either. And um, 
with all of that in mind too, there was something that happened uh, on Wednesday. Was that about seating too, mm-hmm. which was incredibly frustrating. Um, so the gallery is open entirely to the public, and it's as we were informed um, at the beginning of the trial that the seats are first come first serve. Um, I believe. The gallery has 55 seats, but they've reduced it to a capacity of 27, I think, because of COVID. Um, but they, uh, you know, told us it's first come, first serve. And so there have been many supporters of the Excelsior 4 coming, our friends and family, who um, have been sometimes being at the courthouse at 9 a.m. just to be able to watch and show their support to our friends who are facing years in jail. And uh, it came to our attention that um, the sheriffs actually were directly told by the judge to escort seven of the Benedict family members into the gallery and to reserve their seats and then to also have three seats reserved for media. And then the rest was kind of left for all of us. So there was immediately preferential treatment given to the Benedict families just in the, the gallery when it's supposed to be open to the public. And they showed up last every day. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it, it didn't seem that there was any kind of policy around seating. And in a courtroom, I'm sure this isn't the first time that this happens where there's limited seats and more people who want to get in. I'm just surprised that there seems to be no policy that every sheriff knows about. When I asked about this, nobody seemed to know of a policy. Is it first come, first serve? Is it equal seats to each uh, group of people on on the stand? No idea. And and on top of that, the sheriffs would continuously make changes to the rules that were agreed upon that day, minute by minute. Mm-hmm. Depends who you asked. Yeah, and honestly, there should just be an overflow room available for everybody in the public who wants to come and watch mm-hmm. for when the gallery is at capacity. It happened in pretrial. In all <laughs> the time that we spent having discussions with the sheriffs that day about seating, the overflow room could have been set up five times over, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And the courthouse, by the way, is practically empty. I saw one other trial happening, and I visited each floor. So it, I don't understand how that wasn't something that was made possible. Yeah. We should probably add the judges, uh, we should add the judges, the questions that our lawyers put to the judges mm-hmm. regarding the seating. That was very interesting to me. It did appear that either the judge doesn't remember what he said yesterday or he's lying. Can you, can you elaborate on how that discussion went? Well, I could start with, uh, uh, think Leo, um, it Leo was started, the lawyer, by the way, yeah, for the lawyer was asking, did you, uh, the sheriff was saying that you ordered some reserved seating for um, for the Binnendikes, and the judge said, oh, no, I didn't do that. And the question came back, oh, really, are you sure? Because it kind of sounds like that's what they're totally, oh, they can do whatever they want. I, I had a conversation, I guess, and I might have suggested something like that, right? So right there, he's first denying having anything to it, then, then, then he says he's suggesting it. Uh, he's pressed further with uh, written... Um, a record of what the sheriff said and uh he um what do you say he said something to the effect well i you know i just wanted uh, equitable seating out there and when asked the details of what he meant by that uh his answer was oh i've said what i've said that's it and he wouldn't wouldn't elaborate on that point Uh, which we have to accept because he's a judge the next day however um my lawyer joe decided to bring it up again because it was upon reflection very strange and he said uh, uh it should be first come first serve or, or something um, like that you can't just reserve seats and then at that point he said well i didn't say reserve seats i just said that we don't want 
all the supporters of the accused filling up all the seats so that the supporters of the Benedict family uh, don't have any seats to use. Just kind of sidestepping the fact that in order to comply with that order or direction or suggestion, the sheriffs would have to reserve seats. Um, so that's the end of that conversation for now, but it's just kind of showing something about uh, mm-hmm. the judge's attitude towards um, uh, towards everything. Yeah, and again, um, the first day that I was observing on Tuesday, on one of the breaks, the Benedict family that was observing, uh, they were essentially just kind of stood at their chairs waiting for everybody to leave the gallery and um, for everyone to come out of the courtroom. And as I was leaving, I overheard the sheriff in charge that day tell them, stop your stare down, like, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, to the effect of saying, if you don't stop staring down and, and um, using intimidation tactics, that you're going to be asked to leave. So these are people that right from the get-go in the first day of coming to trial were immediately trying to intimidate and be threatening to the gallery and the public and, of course, the Excelsior Four. Physically as well. There were a couple of physical... Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've heard a couple yeah. rumors from other people. That the, the group, uh, some members of the group of the farmers and their family and friends were using their arms to stop activists from being in a certain place in the line outside the courtroom in order to get in after the break was over. Well, someone put uh, their arm exactly against an, um, one of our sides, her throat, actually, not mm. even actually, I believe, touching it. Mm. And uh, one was pretty aggressive with me as well when I was trying to get my clipboard. <laughs> trying to prevent you yeah. from picking up your clipboard off a chair. Well, get past. Right. And I just want to make a point that the judge wants it to be fair mm-hmm. um, for seating. I don't find it that fair when we have people coming from Vancouver, we have people coming from the island, we have people waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning to drive from Kelowna to get here to see this, and they might not get a seat because the people that live frickin' five minutes down the street can't make it there for first come, first serve. Like, it doesn't make any (laughs) sense. Yeah. (laughs) Like, come on. And we were literally told at the beginning of a break that we would be able to come back into the room if we were first in line. And so we all skipped our lunches and pee breaks for an hour and a half. And we stood outside that courtroom in a line only to have the eight members, not seven, actually, another another one came along last minute and they, and they included them. Eight members of the Benedict's uh, crew escorted past us, almost like red carpet service, and, and brought into the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And they were away for the lunch break. They did not stay to hold their place in line. All right. I think we're going to move on. <laughs> That's the gossipy part. Unless unless uh, we can uh, put this in if you want. But It's just a Mad Hatter's tea party where there should be a strict policy. It didn't have to get to what it got to. Somebody needs to enforce some rules. It feels more like you're in high school than the Supreme Court. It does. <laughs> With bullies. Yeah. So. I, I, was, I was noting that, uh, you know, all these retail stores figure out a way to handle early lineups and stopping you know, figuring out a fair way, right? Kind of, at least in Canada. It can't be the first time they've dealt with this. I just don't understand it. Well, as far as I know, they always have an overflow room except for this case this week. Right. That's what I was told. So interesting. Okay, so moving on, we're going to move on to what happened on Thursday. That was kind of a shortened day for us watching in the gallery because something kind of major was brought up in Roy. You'd like to explain that or Nick either? (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay, so during uh, the Crown's direct examination, questioning of uh, 
Jeff Benendike. Jeff, Jeff Benendike. Uh, he mentioned, uh, uh, some things about CCTV and, and started to suggest that he was going to show some CCTV footage. And, uh, I think the three of us, uh, me, Nick and Amy, we were like, whoa, wait, wait. Cause we remember in our disclosure package, the, you get all the evidence that could be used against you and you're allowed to review it. You're, they're required to, um, give you the opportunity to review it. And, you know, we, we noticed that there might have been some media missing and we asked some questions. We noticed that there's some references to CCTV and we asked some questions like, are we going to get that? We never got it. So we just figured, okay, it must not be part of the trial. And then right in front of us, oh, it's going to be part of the trial. So we had to uh, kind of pause at that moment and uh, send the jury out to discuss what's going on here. And in fact, this is a conversation basically between... Uh, the accused, our counsel, our lawyers, and and Crown Counsel. So the judge also left. Uh, and yeah, we, we looked at the video clips that he wanted to show, and it's like, wow, this is all new. Um, uh, but we didn't get it. We haven't had a chance to review this, and there was probably tons more, and he acknowledged, yeah, there's tons more. Uh, our lawyers confirmed uh, that at least two of them had never seen it before, and uh, certainly uh, Amy, Nick, and I had never seen it before. So we Ask the judge, we need to break early and, and give time to review this, come back in the afternoon to see, you know, assess if how much time is needed. And we came back and, and said, uh, you know, we don't have enough time. We'll, we'll have to start reviewing it over, over the weekend, I guess. Uh, I have some of it now, um, and I'm reviewing it, and our, our lawyers are as well. And I, I just gave a copy to Nick. We, we allowed for them to not necessarily provide us each with everything because it takes time to download and upload data so we're, we're figuring that out um and maybe not too surprising we've already found something that we really could have used a couple of years ago uh because you know when you look through disclosure it's you're looking for a few things one is um evidence against you so you can kind of figure out uh do you have a defense here and what is it uh and two is if you find something that is useful for your defense and that you want to use you want to bring to trial um, so we'll see what else comes of it, I guess. But the main point of thing, uh, main thing is that this is just another way, uh, that our defense has been, um, we've been denied a full defense because we don't have that, the normal amount of weeks or months to review something that should have been in our disclosure years ago. Uh, we have to really quickly look through it and, uh, hope to be able to prepare for certain evidence that Crown can bring up. And hope to find things that we might be able to use. Um, and yeah, this is the last, the latest of many instances of something happening in trial, either through some accident or some decision that has uh, denied us a, a full and fair defense. Yeah. Interested to see what next week brings. I want to talk about really what it is that we saw that day in the barn on April 28th, 2019. Kira, you were there with me, uh, you know, just as a, as one of the activists and probably I was live streaming there. You can watch that all on our Facebook page, actually, Animal Voices Vancouver, if you want to see the horrors that were inside that factory farm. And like I said, a lot of people live streamed it. Kira, I was wondering if you did, could describe uh, some of the conditions that we saw for the pigs that day and maybe what you've seen in videos as well, which had surfaced as well around that point. Yeah, so the barn itself, it was honestly filthy. And um, the pigs, they, well, as we spoke to earlier, we were in um, 
the what the Ben and Dykes call the breeding room, where there is a boar there, um, and I think there's five or six rows of crates, gestation crates, just for sows to live in um, for three to five weeks, essentially, to once they get artificially inseminated to see if they are pregnant. And um, when we went in there, the, you know, the sows, I didn't find them to be alarmed. I didn't find them to be frightened by our presence. If, and if anything, they were more curious and friendly. But they were frothing at the mouth. They were showing signs of psychological distress from confinement. Um, they had lacerations and sores on their bodies because these crates are so tiny. They can only take one step forward and backwards and that's it. They can't, they can't turn around and they have to lie on the same spot. Um, and also the, the part that I was sitting on was, um, where the boar is kind of near the front of the room, but there were some activists on the other side of the room who also witnessed a, uh, mother sow who, um, was miscarrying. She did it right in front of me, actually. Yeah. It was really awful. She couldn't even turn her head around to see what was coming out the back of her. That's how tight mm. these bars are around their bodies. Yeah, it's really... Uh, <laughs> I have never witnessed that before. And apparently, I looked it up afterwards. That's something... There's a name for that kind of a miscarriage. Can't think of it right now, but it actually has a term in the farming industry because it's something that does happen. It happens. It's a, it's a regular occurrence. Yeah. And my concern was that she was in pain. She was in labor for hours and there was no help for her. There were no painkillers for her. No one watching over her except for us. And we couldn't do anything, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then she had the fetus came out and she was still there hours after shaking and shaking and shaking. It's not like it just, the pain goes away. And that was one of the pigs, I believe, that we asked for the veterinarians to mm-hmm. look at. And um, my experience was that the vets just didn't look at any of the pigs we had pointed out. There was another pig who was bleeding out with a big gash and blood everywhere all over the ground, if you remember that one, mm-hmm. on the concrete. And... Uh, if, as you remember, the, the vet said they, they said on the news, they are all in generally, generally good health, good condition. This is a violation of the veterinary oath. I don't have it handy to read right now, but I, I did post it on the Animal Voices show that we did at the time of this event. So you can look up Meet the Victims on animalvoices.org and see the veterinary oath. These veterinarians were actually brought on scene that day just to show that the animals are fine. And, and in fact, they were actually helping the uh, farmers hide the worst-looking pigs from the media who was about to be brought in. That is true, and not only that, I believe a lot of um, the PETA coverage that was released by PETA had come out earlier that week, and so that they knew that they were um, they were up for an inspection from the BCSPCA, I believe. And so when we got onto the property, the first thing we saw were dumpsters on, on the side of the property where it said biohazards. And, oh my goodness, <laughs> we looked into those dumpsters. I believe there were three of them filled with dead, bleeding bodies of pigs, as I've described them, of all sizes, from piglets to a few months old to full-size pigs. As far as I understand, that was their way of cleaning up before the media arrived. Can you imagine what we would have found in there if they hadn't done that cleanup? 
And that that image itself, there's so many images of that that photographers took. I have it on the on the Facebook Live that I did for Animal Voices. And that is certainly compelling as well. Like that's part of the stuff. I want to point out too, just the videos that we've seen of the undercover footage, which you can see online, excelsior4.org. I won't forget, like there's cannibalization happening on there. You can see the pigs chewing dead pigs mm-hmm. bodies that are just lying on the ground. You can see huge hernias tum- and tumors Hanging the size off. of baseballs. Yeah, even bigger, I think, hanging mm-hmm. off their bellies even. That's not being treated. And, you and know, they're biting on the bars, the, the metal mm-hmm. bars. Oh, that's part of their stereotopy, I believe, mm-hmm. and going crazy, swinging their heads back and forth. I have videos of that. Sign I've of posted insanity. that. Mm-hmm. Insanity, exactly, because wouldn't you... The sound in there as well, as I was remembering, is just loud, really loud. The smell is you're permeated with ammonia from mm-hmm. from the stench and the chemicals of the urine. And the and imagine what that's like for them who have no choice but to live in there. Well, I'll tell you, I got out of there six hours later and my whole body was permeated with fecal matter i had to take off my biosecurity suit and i actually left it in the trunk of my car until i could deal with the laundry later because i had other clothes on too right the t-shirt and that and i had to take a shower that i swear that was like the hottest longest shower i've ever taken just to get that six hours of filth and stench off of me and they that's what they live and in. a lot of people may say well pigs live in filth they actually don't it's a myth pigs mm-hmm. are very clean animals mm-hmm. they do not like to be in filth and they have no choice here mm-hmm. they are in these uh lying on slotted floors that is meant to collect their feces and urine because there's no way to come and pick it up. They did not have access to water and food when they wanted it. I was told by one of the friends of the farmers outside the barn that that's not true, that they have access to water. I said, no, I have friends in there right now with live cameras streaming to the internet. They do not have access to water. It comes down on an automated system into a trough, same with the food. Yes, I know they had no food or water while we were in there, even though they're supposed to be on auto, um, auto feed. And the, I have videos of, we all have videos of pigs like, um, sw- like shake, uh, swinging their snouts back and forth in the trough, like they're, and they're chewing, like they're trying to chew food, but mm-hmm. there's no food there. there. I actually have the oath that the veterinarians have sworn oh, to. You for if you wanna, that up. Right. So this is what, uh, veterinarians have sworn to become a vet, which is a very large responsibility. As a member of the veterinarian medical profession, I solemnly swear that I will use my scientific knowledge and skills for the benefit of society. I will strive to promote animal health and welfare, prevent and relieve animal suffering, protect the health of the public and the environment, and advance comparative medical knowledge. I will perform my professional duties consciously, with dignity, and in keeping with the principles of veterinary medical ethics. I will strive continuously to improve my professional knowledge and competence and to maintain the highest professional and ethical standards for myself and the profession. So... Nick, what do you think of that oath? I don't know if you've heard it before. <laughs> oh, I've heard it before. Yeah. It, it sounds to me that it completely contradicts factory farming in every which way. And not even factory farming because any kind of uh, killing of animals or exploiting animals for what comes out of them or the flesh on their bodies Absolutely. is inherently inhumane. It is not possible to do it humanely. Roy, you were going to say something. Uh, I'll add that the vets um, present at Excelsior, they were... were Clearly, uh, you, you witnessed and uh, that, that they didn't fulfill their obligations under that oath. 
mm. but they did say that they're going to mm-hmm. you know in fact um, they did ask us to move and we ultimately did so that they could attend to these animals and actually fulfill those oaths uh, I happen to have documentation which I hope I can talk about in detail at some point uh, it shows that the vet uh, was kind of bragging to the police that uh, he misled the activists to trick them into leaving that room I know um, they did. Yeah. So, I mean, we all, obviously you can see with your eyes, but he actually said it um, uh, and, and seemed quite proud, uh, if, I under, if I understood the wording correctly, quite proud that, uh, that he'd managed to deceive us and, and accomplish that. And then as, as you all saw, uh, they didn't attend to any animals. And there's a sign in the barn that says, what happens in the barn stays in the barn, right. which is a reference to the old saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We're up to some naughty things here. It really is just taken as a big, funny joke. And as we saw in the courtroom, Kira, with all the laughter every mm-hmm. time some extreme animal cruelty was mentioned. That was shocking to me. I think, Nick, it was one of your photos that divulged that uh, sign. Amy's live stream. Oh, yeah. was it? Okay. Yeah, so no one everyone really... watching the live stream was able to see it. Uh, shout out to Taylor and Victoria for catching that with yeah. their eagle eyes. Yes, yes, I believe that's right. Yeah, and that's just sort of, that was just so telling of what's actually happening in there. And as I was with the outside team, I was speaking with a lot of the neighboring farmers Picture this. We're out in the middle of Abbotsford, Matsqui area. It's just farmland. And, you know, we show up with these two school buses full of activists quite early in the morning and take them by surprise. And a bunch of activists break into the farm wearing full hazmat gear, I will mention, including booties. We are not a biohazard. Uh, and then the activists who chose not to go in are outside doing a peaceful protest, singing. And sure enough, within a few hours, if not less, the entire road that was previously empty from vehicles is just lined up with pickup trucks. And on the front lawn of the barn is all the local family and friends to support and to harass us and make fun of us. And I I was going down to the gas station to use the washroom and a fellow in his truck pulled me over and said, can I just have an honest talk with you? I said, I would love to. He said, they're a good family. They're a Christian family. They're loving. They care for their animals. You guys are picking on the most kind, compassionate people I know. You, you are making a mistake here. And I, this is when I mentioned that you, Allison, were showing me your video from inside. I said, those pigs don't even have access to water. Look how hot it is out here today. And this is just the morning. It's already hot. And um, he argued with me on that point. As I said earlier, he, he argued and said that they do have access to water. I said, would you let your dog live like those pigs are living with bars around your body for weeks or years or whatever it is? And he said... Animals don't have souls. I said, does that mean they don't have a nervous and system and they he, don't suffer and they don't have feelings? Is he a Christian? I think most of these people are. I, I heard the Benedict family talking about being in church when we were in the courthouse. Oh, yeah. Oh. But Christians, know are taught that animals have souls for sure. That's a teaching in the Bible. So, What relevancy does that have to the fact that they have a nervous system and they suffer and they have emotions? None except that it's a good argument to say to a Christian. I just want to talk a bit about if you could go over what your actual charges are and how lawful use of property fits into that. Um, yeah, so our charges are all basically breaking in or with mischief, um, with mischief being the indictable offense. So mischief is, yeah, like Roy said, interference, obstruction, or interference, obstruction. Even Leo, get, yeah, even Leo keeps getting that <laughs> messed up. Um, interference or obstruction with the uh, lawful use or enjoyment of property. I'd say it was interesting hearing them trying to trying to figure out trying to get something out of them to to 
show that the evidence meets the, the I guess, the threshold, the threshold to, for the charges to stick. But we'll see what happens there. Right. So um, I want to talk about perjury as well, because we saw we witnessed perjury in the courtroom. And are there going to be repercussions? That's not allowed. That's breaking laws itself. We're not lawyers, but we're pretty sure it's illegal to lie in, in court, but, whether, whether you're a witness or a lawyer or a judge. But what happens? Are they, you know, the witness is sworn under oath to tell the truth, and we know he's not telling the truth, and you're not a, your lawyer isn't allowed to prove that. It's really frustrating. It is really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to say something, Kira? Yeah, just as an observer in the gallery, it was very upsetting, um, you know, when th this uh, potential evidence that the judge did not allow, like, those of us in the gallery were able to watch it, and we were all visibly shooken by what we were seeing, mm -hmm. and to still, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, it's truly an injustice, once again, to know that the Menendites are lying under the oath because of what even we could see in the gallery, but yet the jury can't know this at all. Mm -hmm. It's really unfair. Mm -hmm. And once again, anyone can go to excelsior4.org to see the evidence that shows this perjury. Go to that right now and please share it far and wide. How about the listeners who are, are criticizing activists for their tactics, no matter what we do, whether we're handing out free vegan food on the streets <laughs> or whether we are breaking into <laughs> barns and putting in hidden cameras, they are always telling us there's another way that you should be doing it. And I take the line from Jeffrey Gear: you tell me what I have to say to you to make you go vegan and I'll say it back to you and you'll do it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a joke because they won't, because nothing works, because someone who just doesn't want to go vegan doesn't want to go vegan and they will use their criticism of our tactics as a reason for it. So what do you all want to say to people like that today? What do you want them to know? I never want to used to go, I, I never used to want to go vegan. And Good point. Until I, until I woke up. <laughs> like, how did it cause you to go vegan? How did you wake up, Nick? Um, we decided that we were going to try a plant-based diet for um, some health reasons. Uh, after about a week or two into doing that, um, I kind of started watching some documentaries on animals and what happens within the industry. And being someone who really loves and cares about animals, it was a pretty big no-brainer. And it was fun. Like learning how to veganize all of your favorite foods was fun and we live in the day in the age of google if your favorite food is chicken alfredo google vegan chicken alfredo it's not that hard to do and it's 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 super easy and yeah i used to be the guy that made fun of vegans that would stack his chicken wings as high as possible and eat nothing but steaks and chickens and my dad used to own all the mcdonald's in Kelowna. like oh. <laughs> i am not i do not come from a plant-based background whatsoever most of us don't. What about you, Roy? Uh, I'll say that uh, I, I also used to be basically anti-vegan, and it's pretty clear the reason why is because I understood there was a conflict in uh, my values, my logic, and my actions. Um, so I had to I had to cope with that in in that way. Apparently, so if you are finding yourself hostile to vegans or not receptive to their message, maybe you were like me. Um, not that you would admit it to yourself this moment. If you're down to criticizing activist tactics to justify continuing to support the torture of animals, I'd say, okay, forget about the activists. Screw the activists. Let's, let's talk about the topic. Let's talk about the, the reasons why they're doing activism. 
um, because you don't you don't need to like them or respect them, but uh, maybe you should actually listen to something some of the arguments they put forward. Uh, for the other activists who like to just criticize everything that other activists do, um, I guess history will show uh, in the end uh, what really worked the best and whatever. We're all kind of working in the fog here, trying to do our best. But like uh, like Regan Russell said, we got to do something because if you do nothing, you exactly. accomplish nothing. And I think when you say the history will tell what what tactic works best, and I think history will tell that all of the tactics together work best. So there's no reason to criticize anyone else's tactic. Oh yeah, take a look at uh, successful social justice movements. There's some really out there stuff that happened that's uh, almost comical at times, but kind of appeared to have made an impact there. We really don't know what it takes to make you care, and we're just trying everything. Mm-hmm. Kira, let's hear your vegan story. Uh, yeah, I um. I, at a very young age, actually went vegetarian because I saw videos of animal cruelty at like the age of seven. And it was difficult. I think I wanted to initially go vegan, but, you know, my family was, oh, it's going to be too hard for you to give up cheese and milk. You love that stuff too. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay. Um, But I was was a vegetarian up until I was uh, 17 or 18, um, which I had some severe health concerns that arose around that time for me and my doctor at the time told me that I had to start consuming animals again for my health but I found out that that is actually not the true and actually it has probably contributed to my condition worsening um so doctors are still telling people this (laughs) yeah so flash forward to uh December of 2017 and um I'm in Vancouver and I am doing outreach and seeing for the first time footage of baby chicks being macerated alive from the egg industry and seeing what's happening for all of the um, baby calves in the dairy industry and what happens to them. And I'm like, yeah, okay, nope. It was a no brainer. It just reignited everything that I knew like as a kid as to why I wanted to be vegetarian in the first place. But this time I was in a place where I had control over what I ate because I'm an adult now (laughs) and I'm in a place in my life where I can make these informed decisions and have access to it. And everybody has access to it unless you're like living way up North, essentially. Speaking of doing activism where you're seeing that footage and showing it, maybe, um, maybe Laura, you can talk a little bit about TV outreach activism Mm -hmm. and there's some happening this probably won't get on because it's today at four o'clock, Canada Day, but it's every weekend. Do you want to tell us a bit more about who's doing that mm-hmm. and how you can educate yourself if you're just listening and in the Vancouver area or come out and participate? Yeah. And, and the reason this is so close to my heart as a tactic is because it's the reason that most vegans become vegan as they challenge themselves to look up how animal products are made. And we forced ourselves to sit in an uncomfortable situation for much less time than the animals sat in those situations and and witness what we're funding. And so there's an activist uh, here called Jeffrey Gear, who is a former undercover investigator with Mercy for Animals. And he leads a program called TV Outreach for Animals, where giant TV screens and speakers are brought to the streets in very busy places such as um, subway stations and a downtown core and beaches and things like that. And there's activists that attend and educate the public on what they're seeing on the screens and ask them questions that lead them to a vegan conclusion. 
Jeff is also the fourth of the Excelsior four. Mm-hmm. She just point had his out. charges stayed. So you're really the Excelsior three now, but we've all branded the Excelsior four. We can't give up the hashtag. Hashtag Excelsior four and the t-shirt that Nick is wearing right now. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I would advise just go on Facebook and look up TV outreach for animals. And Jeff will send you invites on there every weekend as he does to me. So. And also there's a group. It's called Meatless Meetup, but it's always a vegan restaurant and that's hey, a really great that's way my to, group that's your group that's a great way to, to just try some uh, vegan food in vancouver and meet some new friends and uh, right go We've to got some coming up don't we yeah go to meetup.com slash meatless meetup m-e-a-t-l-e-s-s meetup do you feel after this week's events that justice will be served are you surprised at learning things about the court system that maybe you didn't really know were a reality before. Nick, I know you have some thoughts about this. Honestly, when it comes to animals and the legal system, my faith in having justice served is pretty jaded. And I don't think, I, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm remaining hopeful. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, I was a lot more hopeful between, before this week's events, I think. Um, but I'm going to stay positive. I, I, I still think that uh, if the jury's paying attention, they'll find that the evidence still does not meet the threshold for the charges. I agree. Uh, period. Um, but are they paying attention is the question, because previously we had, I, I think we'd established, we would be able to establish that like 200%, 300%. And so if they're paying half attention, even if they're high uh, for some reason, <laughs> then then I think they would have gone, oh, wait, you know what? I'm not, I don't think we can do this. Uh, now they're going to have to be pretty sharp. Um, yeah. but, uh, I do have some faith in them, but more importantly, no matter what happens, uh, I think that there will be some level of justice for, for the animals we left behind, uh, once all said and done in history. If nothing else, it is shedding a massive light on the industry and it is shedding a massive light on the animals and what the animals are going through. And it's making its way through, um, the hearts and minds of a lot of people. So I think in the end, um, you know, a lot of people are going to be woken up to what's happening inside the animal agriculture industry within British Columbia. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah, I do have faith in our jury and who knows what's going to happen over the next two, three weeks of court. So we're going to take a quick break now. We're going to speak to Ingrid in a bit. Did you want to say something? Laura? I just want to say, everybody, please remember yeah. that the law does not run parallel with morality. And please watch the documentary Earthlings on Vimeo.com to see how all of your animal food products are made. Thank you for that. So we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back with you in a bit. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services, or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. (laughs) 
On today's show, we have a feature interview with founder and president of the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, Ingrid Newkirk. Since founding PETA in 1980, Ingrid has grown the group into the world's largest animal rights organization. Her passion and dedication to making this world a better place for all living beings has inspired countless others to do what they can to help animals. Since it was founded, PETA has exposed horrific animal abuse in laboratories, leading to many firsts, including cancelled funding, closed facilities, seizure of animals, and charges filed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. PETA has also closed the largest horse slaughter operation in North America, convinced dozens of major designers and hundreds of companies to stop using fur, ended all car crash tests on animals, helped schools switch to innovative animal-free dissection tools, and provided millions of people with information on being vegan, companion animal care, and countless other issues. Issues. Ingrid is an abolitionist who remains committed to the idea that animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, or use for entertainment. Ingrid is also a prolific author. She has written many books, and today she is here to speak about her 30th anniversary edition book called Free the Animals, The Amazing True Story of the Animal Liberation Front in North America. And we will also have a bit of a group chat with the Excelsior Four later in the interview. Hello, Ingrid, and welcome back to the Animal Voices Vancouver Radio Show. Oh, hello. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you very much for having the Excelsior Four on. It's a very, very important case. Yes, exactly. So it's it's such a pleasure to have you back, and most certainly it's always a pleasure to read any of your books. I learn so much from them, and you're a really great writer as well. <laughs> the book that I am reading now, Free the Animals, is no different. However, it is really an exciting, fascinating, and riveting page-turner of the history of activities of the Animal Liberation Front, which is a global secret organization. Could you please start with telling our listeners more about what the ALF is and what compelled you to write a book to expose their past operations as started in America in the 1980s? Well, the Free the Animals, the, the book you're talking about, is actually the 30th anniversary edition. It's a special mm-hmm. edition. I'm delighted to say that Joaquin Phoenix has bought the movie rights to it, so I hope it's going to be made into a film that will wake a lot of people up. It's the true story, every single fact, every raid, every rescue, every animal in it is exactly how it was. Every detail is exactly how it was. And the only thing I had to change was the names and, of course, the just mask the identity of the people who were actually involved. But they're all real characters. And the reason I had to do that is because in some states, in the United States, the statute of limitations on felonies and what they committed were felonies has not run. So all these people are active, they're alive, they're well. Some of them are in the animal rights movement today, and we don't want them to be behind bars any more than we want anybody else who does good things and brings the truth out of laboratories and factory farms and fur ranches and so on to be behind bars. They don't deserve it. What they deserve is um, to be praised for allowing us to see the things that those who abuse animals very carefully hide and lie about. You were talking about the possibility of perjury with uh, the things that are being said in court, and there may be a case afterwards to to bring a, a perjury case if people are lying to try to convict these wonderful people who went into the pig farm. 
Yes, that's what they did. Exactly. Thanks for commenting on that. It, I just see so many parallels here to ALF and, and what the Excelsior for are facing right now. So I'm not even going to ask how you got this book to be so detailed. It's uh, not a question to be asked, but thank you for all the details in the book. It just reads like a thriller, really. It, it, it is in chronological order following the life of a person you have called Valerie, a young 23-year-old police officer in the state of Maryland. Could you please tell us about how she was exposed to the other side of the law and about the Silver Springs monkey case. Yes, well, as I say, everything, every detail is true. What happened was Peter, in 1980, actually went inside a laboratory in Silver Spring, Maryland. You'd have driven by it, not known there, were, there was anything going on inside it, but in the back room, there were 17 macaque monkeys kept in tiny metal cages, barely bigger than their own bodies. And most of them had torn off some, or in one case, the little monkey Billy, all his fingers, because the psychologist, who had no medical training, wasn't a veterinarian, had opened up their backs, and he had rendered the nerves in their arms insensate to some degree. And then he would lock them in a converted refrigerator and electroshock them until, and some of them couldn't do it, they would pick up raisins from an indented uh, tray. And this was supposedly, he was getting money, supposedly to help him devise some treatment for human stroke victims. Well, I've never seen a human stroke victim have their back operated on and be electric shocked to pick up raisins from a tray or kept in a converted refrigerator, so it was clearly bunk. But in addition, like as in so many labs, the monkeys were not looked after, not respected. They were in a white-washed walled room in these tiny cages. Sometimes people would forget to come in and feed them. They didn't have um, trays to put the food, the monkey chow in. And a monkey like little Billy, who didn't have any fingers, when they threw the monkey chow into the cage, it would drop into the fecal trays where their waste was kept beneath it, and he would have to try with his feet to pick it out to eat. I mean, it was just every facet of it was so wrong. Um, so Peter went to the police, and we served with them a search and seizure warrant and removed those monkeys. We had experts in primatology and medicine, and you, you name it, who came and testified in our behalf. And we got the warrant, got the monkeys out. And Valerie, her division was part of that seizure. She came to know the monkeys as individuals. There was one who had a terrible back injury, Augustus. He would just rock back and forth because he was in pain all the time. And she would take a hairbrush. And he would lean up against the cage and she would brush his back with the brush and try to make him feel better. So she knew them. But all these animal experimenters came from all over the country to tell the prosecutor, to intimidate the prosecutor, to say, you don't know what you're talking about. This is science. You know, cockroach infestation, that's ambient protein for the monkeys. Filth. They're defecating machines. So the prosecutor was went to court, and the judge and the prosecutor were about to send the Silver Spring monkeys back to the experimenter. And he said, 
in 10 days, I'll operate on, on them again and kill them. And Valerie was one of the people who was approached by some ordinary folks who had also come to know these poor monkeys and said they can't go back. They just can't go back. And someone said to her, please, will you park your cruiser outside the facility where the monkeys are being kept tonight, and we will spirit them away. And if someone sees them coming out of the building, they'll see your cruiser, your police car, and they'll think it's legit. And at first, of course, she couldn't countenance this. This was against everything with her training, which her career, but she'd come to love them. And she decided, I have to do it. So she did. And after that, there was no turning back. The monkeys went to freedom in Florida. There are pictures of them sitting amid Spanish moss and looking out at the grounds. And and she couldn't go back, so she founded the U.S. Animal Liberation Front. Wow, that that story alone is so... It's so emotional for me to hear you tell it, even though I read it. It's, it's, it's really gripping. Thank you for that. I was wondering if maybe we could go into another story. Uh, people really identify, you know, just average listeners, they really identify with dogs and dogs are experimented on in laboratories, which is really quite horrible. I'm wondering if you can talk about when Valerie starts to get more involved. As you said, she starts the chapter in the U.S. She uh, quits her job as a police officer. And can you tell us about the riveting chapter in the book that describes uh, Valerie's mission to uh, it with regards to the dog rescue from UC Harbor? Well, yes, there's a UC Harbor where, of course, the ALF actually took the door off the hinges. This was a time before CCTV and other things that have precluded such actions mostly for many years. But they went inside and they found all these wonderful dogs with wires sticking out of their chests, lying on cement in their own filth. And they took them away because a whistleblower had said, these animals are suffering so much, they don't give them proper painkillers and so on. And they drove them all the way across the country. And the dogs seemed to know that they were in the hands of people who cared about them. And when the truck would stop and the dogs would be unloaded to roll in the grass or wherever they did, uh, they were just so full of joy. And luckily, the ALF had recruited veterinarians who could help work to relieve their pain and to try to get their surgery reversed or at least make them comfortable. Um, and so it was phenomenal. They were on their way, as you say, there's a lot of adventure, it's all true. They were on their way across the country, and there had been an APB put out, an all-points bulletin, to look for these dogs stolen from UC Harbor. And they were driving along, and they were stopped by a policeman on the straight-line road from California across the middle of the U.S., and they had a curtain behind the driver and the passenger who were taking turns driving. And the dogs all in the back, you know, a dozen of them. <laughs> and they would just, when they were stopped, Valerie's heart was in her mouth because she thought if they make a peep. And so the um, police officer came up to the window and said, driver's license, where are you going? And um, at that moment... A dog put his muzzle through, his snout through the curtain 
right by Valerie's shoulder, and she thought, oh, no. And he, the officer said, what have you got back there? And she said, oh, a mother and her puppies. Would you like a puppy? Are you in the market for a puppy? And he said, no, just drive on. <laughs> so they were gone, and they all went into homes after they had been vetted and so on. There are other dog stories in the in the book, of course, all very exciting, many near misses, but all with happy endings. And may I just tell you that in Virginia today, just hours ago, a court agreed with us in the Department of Justice and almost 4,000 beagles in a facility where we went undercover for seven months are not going to be allowed to be sold into experimentation. They're all going into homes, and the place is going to close down. That's incredible work, and that's the kind of thing that your organization is known for, for actually making results because of taking these leaps that no regular person wishes to dare go, except for some of the people in the room here in the radio station. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So the work of these of uh, these committed activists it's dangerous. It's exciting. It's extremely risky. They could face many years in prison if captured, which some have, as you noted. And yet they feel compelled to dedicate their lives to breaking and entering into animal torture facilities with the intent of not only liberating animals and finding good homes for them, but to gather the evidence needed to expose and prosecute the animal abuse users who seem to me to be like deranged mad scientists who just keep repeating the same invasive and cruel test to animals in their possession for years and years in secret with no repercussions. Can you talk about the kind of drive and personal fortitude it takes in your opinion for an animal advocate to dedicate themselves to such a cause in this way? Well, you have to care. I mean, people care about different things. Maybe you care about, you know, orphans or the environment or whatever. People are moved. It's really not up to them a lot of what really, really moves them, but they're moved. And if everybody did something about what they're moved by, it would be a different world. In the book, I talk about the ordinariness of the people who were involved in the Animal Liberation Front. There was a Navy officer. There's a mother raising two kids by herself. There's the police officer, yes. But there was an animal control officer. There's a carpenter. There's an auto mechanic. I mean, these are just people. But this moved them. And I do ask, you know, while I was writing this book, I had a, a wonderful dog called Miss B. And Miss B was sort of a cross between a couch and a German shepherd. She loved food, and it showed. But she um, was my friend. She was my pal. I loved her. She thought she went to work with me every day. And I thought, you know, if someone had taken my beloved Miss B and put her in a laboratory on one of those cement slabs or in a factory farm, you could say the same thing, and they were going to hurt her. They were going to kill her. They didn't care about her. They kicked her. They let her sit in her own waist, and they were going to do something that would end her life. Would I write a polite letter to somebody that would be ignored? Would I just stand in the street with a sign saying, please don't kill Miss B? Or if I knew there was a window that I could get through, could I get into that home? Would I do it and take her out? Or as in the case of the University of Pennsylvania baboon experiments, they got out 70 hours of videotape that damned all the experimenters, showed them laughing 
at the baboons, mocking them, holding them up while they were brain damaged with one arm. I mean, it exposed the facts, just as the Excelsior 4 has exposed what's going on where you can't see it if you're an ordinary person. Would you do that for your own dog? And if you would, then you must only sympathize, empathize, praise, be glad that there are people who are brave enough, yes, but just push themselves to do what they know is right, as all social movements have had people who've pushed themselves to show what's going on. Bravery, exactly. We have five very brave people in this station right now who I can see. And uh, two of them, Nick and Roy, would like to say hi to you, Ingrid. Hi, Ingrid. Thank you for uh, putting videos up and, and sharing our story. Hey, Ingrid. Yeah, I just want to echo that. And thank you so much for your support all the way through this. It, it really means the world to us. Uh, well, thank you for doing whatever you do. And it's our pleasure. We will always take information that the public has a right to know that shows what is happening to animals and hope that through that, and it does, through that people will change their diets, their shopping habits, their support of things that are atrocities. So it's our privilege. So just a final note here. We only have about a minute left, but uh, I don't know if you've heard about what, what's happened with the Excelsior 4 trial this week, but what is your hope for the trial in terms of the outcome that may may or may not be there? We don't know yet as to people people being exposed for what they do to animals, just terrible conditions in this farm, which I saw firsthand. And I know you've seen the footage, obviously, that um, that has been taken. I wonder if you could just see, say a few, maybe hopefully encouraging, because I think they need encouraging words right now, Nick and Roy. If you could send them some words of encouragement, please. Oh, well, they're pioneers. And <laughs> it's not always easy for pioneers and sometimes, you know, I mean, you're not going to be Nelson Mandela who sat on Robin Island for all those years in a cell. It won't happen to you. And you've done already amazing things because of your courage that have opened eyes and hearts and minds. But who knows what will happen? If there is justice, the people who do these things to pigs, who have every bit as much feeling as any dog or as me, would go to jail, and they'd stay there. But if justice is not served, and you are not exonerated, let out for on some technicality or in any way, and it, you're, you're setting a path that other people will follow, and it, I'm sure you will be strong no matter what happens. Look at Anita Krantz, who was on trial for just giving water to a poor pig who is about to die. Look at the direct action everywhere, people who've been in and taken a goat and a lamb out and things like that. Some of these cases, the judge understands, and somehow or the other, it, it goes away, and the truth is all that stands. But if something happens to you, you have our total admiration. We know you'll be strong, and that time will pass. I agree, absolutely. I, I, I'm glad to be part of it and uh not really worried because they can't they can't split our throats yeah there you go exactly i feel the same way and no matter what our repercussions are i mean it pales in comparison to what those pigs go through every single day you're tremendous plus we have other people in this room who can take over <laughs> there you are who will get it out on the airwaves and you'll veganize everybody in jail because you'll have a captive audience <laughs> 
yes. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for those very inspiring words, Ingrid. I, I know I'm really touched with what you just said for our activists here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Ingrid is the founder and president of the world's largest animal rights organization, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Please get a copy of her book, Free the Animals, if you love a gripping and compelling story that is so inspirational. And, and perhaps you'll be motivated to do the same and take action in such a such a direct way for animals there's uh, so many personal insights and experiences there of what happens to animals when people decide that uh, you know they're here to use and torture for their own selfish purposes which animals are not here for and keep your eyes peeled for the movie version of the book free the animals which Joaquin Phoenix has recently bought the film rights to that's going to be so exciting for more information about PETA's work in animal liberation you can go to PETA.org Org. And of course, Ingrid, you're on all the social media channels as well. Thank you once again for joining us and have a very nice weekend. Thank you and good luck to everyone. Thank you. Take care. So <laughs> I just want to hear, were you as touched as I was, Roy and Nick, about that uh, Ingrid's words to you? <laughs> yeah, that, that was unexpected. I, was, I didn't think we'd be getting that level of pep talk. That, that was great. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Absolutely. So I want you to think about those words when you're in court next week in the next few weeks, because it really, you know, that that to me, sometimes you just need a pep talk, right? Sometimes you just need someone who's been there before who, you know, she's so much wiser and experienced, right? And, you know, you're basically doing this for the first time. So I'm going to give this opportunity for the last moments here. If Nick, you could maybe speak about how you feel that people can learn more and support the cause that you're out there for in trial. We were there this week as court supporters. And what would you like to say to our listeners about that? Yeah, I mean, now I think more than ever, uh, after seeing what's been happening in court and the way the system's being run, um, and who else is in court right now, I think it's more important than ever to have as many people as possible show up to the courtroom um, and show their support. I would love to have a room full of peaceful, loving, compassionate, understanding, and caring people to contrast the uh, farmer's family that is being very loud and disrespectful and boisterous in the back there. Um, and also just to show the jury how many people really care about the animals, how many people are there in support of the animals that are suffering inside of Excelsior, and how many people just want to have our backs in this trial. Um, I think it makes a huge difference showing showing the jury that we're not just three wild people out there doing crazy things um there's a there's a world of support behind behind us um and roy do you want to take over how uh how else they can support oh i uh, geez we can start with uh showing we show up in court look at our website excelsior4.org follow our twitter the excelsior4 um what else is there? All the actions that we have are on the website as well, including some letter writing um, type things and a petition. And there's probably more to come on that. Uh, the website also has a shop button where you can get our cool t-shirts and some stickers from different locations or order them from different locations or just from a distributor. Um, we have a GoFundMe as well on, on there where um, you can help us uh, uh, stay out of debt a little bit better from, <laughs> from this whole whole thing. And uh, I think that's everything. Yeah. 
That's a lot. <laughs> and I, I just want to thank you for being here today and, and Kira for coming out to support as well because you were there that day too. Nick, did you want to say something? Yeah, just a quick reminder. Um, trial is every day, Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And anyone from the public is allowed to come and join. So feel free between those times at the uh, Abbotsford Supreme Courthouse. Right, that's the new courthouse on Veterans Way and free parking underneath. Nick, I think you said it's better than a Netflix crime drama or something like that. <laughs> that's what I said. I that's was so said. entertaining. Yeah, except yeah. for the boring parts. <laughs> Even except the boring for- parts. <laughs> they have very good lawyers. They're clever, and I find it hilarious when they call out the farmer for, not call out the farmer for lying, but get that out of the farmer. It's <laughs> And if you want to know what the farmer's lies are that we speak about, go to Excelsior4.org. It's all been made public before. It's on the internet. And it's, um, you know, that that just has to get out there some way. And I have hope. And there's more I wish we could talk about. Maybe we could have you on at a later point. But we have to close the show now. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the Animal Voices radio show on 100.5 FM, Vancouver Co-op Radio on Unseated and Ancestral Slave. Wetus, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Tune in next week on Friday, July 8th for another radio show. I don't know if it's going to be a live show or if I'm going to do a rebroadcast, but we will see. We here at the Animal Voices show modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org and I encourage you to go there and type in uh, Abbotsford or Excelsior and you'll find all the shows that we have done to report on this case in the last three years from the beginning. Our past podcasts are all available also on Apple Podcasts and Google Play so you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. Join our Facebook page and Instagram both at Animal Voices Vancouver and if you want to get in touch let us know how we're doing or send along show segment ideas you can send us a note on Facebook or send us an email at info at Animal Voices Dot org. We do need help here at Animal Voices. We are all volunteer run and we cover animal advocacy issues. If you have technical skills or knowledge about animal advocacy issues or enjoy communicating, have research skills, etc., please uh, contact us. We would love your help. Info at animalvoices.org. So to close the show today, I'm going to be playing a song that is very appropriate. I think it's so fitting for the themes of today's discussion. This song is called Passion for Freedom by True Nature. Stay tuned next for Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today and remember to be kind to the animals. Suffering as being 
Go wrong. 